One of the biggest aha moments of my career was discovering that I wasn't actually in the food and beverage industry. I was in the inventory management business. And the easiest way to make more money wasn't one-off events or nightly specials. It was optimizing my seating inventory on peak. More butts in seats is more money today. And here's how you get it. Yelp for Restaurants guest manager waitlist functionality empowers your guests to add themselves to your digital waitlist before they even leave their house. It provides accurate wait times and automatically notifies diners right before their table is ready. This dramatically reduces turn times, enabling you to handle more volume. Learn more about how this powerful tool can optimize your seating inventory today at restaurants.yelp.com. Now here we go maybe the packaging is really expensive or the labeling so you're just sort of listening to what's going on in the business and then trying to make an educated decision based on that what you're hearing so i think that's probably the best tool ultimately that you have in data in numbers and really being able to look at things critically to make those educated decisions. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. A great business starts with a great plan, but in our industry, those plans can come in many different forms. Today we chat with Michael Jance Moon of DC Vegan, a catering company turned deli turned bar concept that's revolutionizing the way people eat and think in the DC area. In our conversation, we unpack how this story began with a bulletproof plan and discuss the ways in which we can all plan to win. The coolest thing that comes up around this conversation is that in my experience, and I think it's maybe a more general experience, is that as a musician, as an artist coming into the game, I already had the skill set, right? The project management skills, business development skills, the marketing, the branding, the um, geezing, the relationship building, the networking, it goes on and on and on because I was running a small business. I was like a moderately successful singer-songwriter. Jumped on some big tours, had some big openers, put out a handful of records, toured around. But by and large, I was running that business by myself, right? But we don't think of that as being a business. We think of, oh, you're just, in my case, I was just a musician and putting out records and playing shows and whatever. But everything that goes into that are the same things that go into building a business, right? The end product is such that the value of that, I guess, relies on some sort of luck and timing and the, the connections and whatever versus making like a more tangible product that that is you can do some market research. You can kind of figure it out who the audience is and you can sort of tailor it, find the need, etc. But the whole process is so similar 
that I feel like I've been doing in my whole life. So you're a businessman and you were just in the business of music and now you're in the business of food. Exactly. So it wasn't a crazy jump and it's still very creative. Many development, branding, promotions, merchandising, marketing, PR. It's all super creative stuff. And again, in the same way I was doing that, I was on talk shows, I was on podcasts, I was on radio shows, right? So a lot of that being out in front of the, quote, product has been happening for a really long time. It's so interesting you say that because I would say that almost everything you listed are the things that most of us consider optional, right? Marketing, branding, getting yourself out there, talking, having the conversation, building brand awareness. I'm sure that in music, it's kind of always front and center because it's such a performative act. But in the restaurant industry, whether we're talking about your bar program, your deli, or whether we're talking about the catering operation, it's real easy to forget all of that shit and just get buried by day-to-day operations. So that being the case, how do you maintain your focus? Well, I mean, that's interesting, but I feel like it's so detrimental if you do get buried by it, right? Because in the, we're in Washington, D.C., so a lot of that, you can have a great product, but if you don't cut through the noise, if you're not a player somehow drawing attention to yourself, there's just simply so much going on in the city. So I feel like it's completely necessary to the degree of it's very interesting when people don't do that and have success because I feel like that's such a part of it. So I feel like the answer to your question though is just keeping that in focus and getting to it when you can get to it, but keeping it sort of in the scope of the project and you just realizing there's a give and a take and you can't always be in PR mode right? But there are times where you should be in PR mode. And I would invite folks to jump on those opportunities. I feel like we just became best friends. When I was charting my path as a restaurateur, I wanted to be the best restaurateur in the world. Right. But I guess Will Godera was already that guy. Mm -hmm. But I also realized like everybody was competing for the same thing. Everybody wanted to be the best restaurateur in the world. But if I was the best marketer in the restaurant industry, I was able to carve out a niche for myself and I was able to compete with my competitors in a way that they hadn't even considered. Could I tell my story better than they do? Could I attach myself to their brand in a way that they didn't expect that actually breeds brand awareness for what I'm doing? I've seen you do all of these things, right? co-brand and manipulate the narrative so the focus is on you and your brand, even though there are all of these other partnerships involved. How did you learn how to do all that? I mean, like I said, I feel like I'd been doing this for such a long time and just watching the spheres, the food industry is the segment, right? But the sphere that we're operating in is just life. So if you look at any product and you look across and how they're measuring their metrics and what they're doing to get the word out via TikTok or LinkedIn or 
I just feel like there's just such an opportunity there. And a lot of that opportunity can be available at a very low cost. And it's no money to take out Facebook ads. If you get a little press or to take out an ad on Insta and spend $100 a week and your ROI on that is crazy, right? So I guess it wasn't that I learned how to do that, but it's just that to me, that is a piece of the whole that just is like how you would move forward to bring a product to market, right? So it's just kind of entangled in there, just like it was putting out a record. And, or, you know what, I guess really the kind of how I learned it was from being an artist and having no money and having to be super creative with how you were going to reach people with zero dollars, right? So it's that sort of ingenuity and that craft that that was, <laughs> you didn't have the resources, what are you going to do? So you were using the new technology, you're using Facebook, MySpace, your website, you're just sort of utilizing as many of those resources as you can. And so that's always sort of stuck with me as a way to just to move through the planet. And so certainly with this business, and it's kind of the fun part. It is really the fun part. It's so easy to be in the weeds with everything. But if you can get out of the weeds and look at that, and fortunately, I work with my wife. She's our CEO. She's a PhD. She's a really good thinker and she's really good at strategy. And for as much as we have to be in the weeds, like I said, it's never really out of mind that that component, we have to engage with that component to move forward. So you're a vegan and you created this restaurant concept, DC Vegan. And you guys do catering. You have like a super eclectic bar program. And I would assume that you created it because you saw an underserviced market in D.C. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's right. So we started as a full service catering company, vegan catering company. To this day, eight years later, we are still the only full service vegan catering company. So we sort of started doing the market research. We saw that every animal rights organization has an office here. Every environmental organization has an office in D.C. But, you know, we just, uh, D.C., I think when we were doing our research in 2015, had been voted the healthiest city in the country by Forbes magazine. So you've, it skews younger. You've got all the colleges, fitness. You've got a lot of type A folks. And yeah, the name DC Vegan was available. It was just so untapped that it was wide open and at the time, for us, it didn't feel like we were ahead of the curve. It felt like we were just kind of at the landing at the right time. But it has taken six, seven years. The quote, the curve is kind of evolving. And now we're seeing environmental firms are hiring us and tech conferences are hiring us to do catering. So 
people that aren't plant-based, people that maybe just want to have a greener event, people that want to reduce their carbon footprint, Jewish folks, people that eat kosher food. So we're just seeing the market explode. And it's so cool to see it happen. I would assume in the early days, it had to be a little frightening. The first concept I opened as an owner was a New Orleans-inspired bar on Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles. And I turned to my business partner and he goes, why has anyone done this before? Like, I feel like this would do really well with locals, with tourists. All that. I said, either I'm a genius or I'm an idiot. It's going to be <laughs> one or the other. Because it, it's it just, a fine line. It is. And it just seems so obvious to me that this needed to exist. But then the other side of it is you think to yourself, well, if it doesn't exist, there's got to be a reason. Mm-hmm. And so walk me through that thought process, because what I'm hearing from you is that it was well-researched, right? That you knew that there were these pockets of people that could potentially be interested in this, but that doesn't always equate to demand, right? Yeah. And just like you with that New Orleans themed bar, you, in essence, were gambling. Yeah. We're gambling. We're making a super educated guess. For us, we definitely saw the trends moving forward. We saw the consumer packaged goods segment, the oat milk, and just saw like the plant-based products blowing up, the Beyond Meat and those stocks going through, you know, those when the IPO went public. And we sort of had indicators where it was reinforcing that our hypothesis, but you just have to do your homework and do it. And then let me know like how you all did. But like for us, once it's open, then I think we're doing a lot of listening. So we're doing a lot of, lot of listening. So in our case, we opened our vegan bar and we were thinking it would be kind of like a corner bar kind of a deal, like um, just a nice corner bar kind of a thing. We found very early on that people were coming there. They wanted full service. They wanted dinner. And they wanted in it sort of that experience. And so we leaned into that experience, entrees and pasta and more elaborate drinks. So it's like we sort of opened and then we did a lot of listening. Was that something that you found you were doing with your New Orleans concept? Yeah, for sure. When we opened, it was all bar service and we didn't have waiters and waitresses. And, you know, after, what, three or four weeks of people sitting at a table until they were absolutely irate and then flipping the table and leaving, we were like, maybe we should throw a couple of servers on the floor, which I think for somebody not in the industry would say, hey, no big deal. Just hire a couple of people. But there's infrastructure associated with that. Now you've got to have a pass and server stations, additional POS systems, all of this stuff that we didn't manager. Right. Oh, yeah, for sure. And look, if you have servers, you have to have bussers, right? So now it's this whole thing. And yeah, I mean, no different than rearing a child, right? You give birth to this thing, and then for the rest of your life, it's going to tell you what it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, and your job is to listen. It is. But a unique advantage that I think you have, and I was just kind of born with this hustle mentality. But when you start in catering, you don't open a brick and mortar and expect people to come to you because you're used to in a catering operation, 
soliciting business. Mm-hmm. I think so many restaurateurs open their doors. This is their gift to the world. And they say, welcome in. And the marketing stops as soon as you open your doors and that initial rush comes in. But taking a caterer's perspective, there are no doors to open. So the only way people know you exist is if you're doing the outreach. So talk to me about that. Talk to me about what marketing and outreach look like for the catering company and how that translated to the brick and mortars. Well, yeah, very different. I would say one thing that's ended up being pretty cool is sort of the social outreach component, the vegan outreach or activism component in our case has been through a lot of those private events. So for eight years, we've been doing all kinds, thousands and thousands of people in these private events, but only those people at those events could eat that food. So for one, delivering, delivering, delivering every time. I'm not kidding when I say we never drop the ball on a catering job. We never drop the ball. Sure, we made mistakes, but we just delivered. We did what we said we were going to do. We did it really well, and we make a really great product. So I think that word of mouth is helpful. I think in our case, sort of having that market segment where there isn't a lot of competitors in the space. So a lot of times people want to go to DC Vegan because we are a vegan business and we are a vegan catering company. Sometimes that helps people want sort of that they don't want a company that does meat part of the time or they want to be certain that what they're going to get is quality. So they want to go to somebody who specializes in that. The deli and the bar that we have is way more boots on the ground. It's a lot easier for folks to interact with the brand. And that was the biggest change that we saw is like immediately folks could interact with the brand. So for catering, for tastings, right now we've got a great place to come for tastings. You can see how we've decorated the space. You can see the service. The kind of the whole thing gives you an idea about the quality. But for the first time for us, going into the retail space, people could buy the food, the general public could get the product. And that was the biggest thing. So we had sort of honed it for these eight years and we've been killing it. And then when we started doing the food, it was like, we knew exactly what was up. It was a really great product. And now people could come and get the buffalo cauliflower wings that you could only previously get in an event. You grew slow. You grew methodically. And I think that there's definitely a lesson in there as you work to build audience. Because the whole time you're talking and in researching this, I'm like, is there enough demand? I mean, is there enough business out there for a business like this to sustain, even though it's been a decade and you're probably in your prime, right? Because you were early before and now you've grown with the market and the audience. But what are your thoughts on that? Well, I would say that in our research, that the DMV, which is Washington, D.C., Northern Virginia, and sort of Maryland there, 
the DMV, according to like the census tract data, is doing or the business data, it's doing five hundred billion dollars a year in catering. Five hundred billion dollars. And then we would look at the census data and you look at it, you know, what percentage of people are vegans. And so they say 6% are vegans or whatever. But the way we see it is ultimately if DC Vegan is a catering company can capture 1% of this $500 billion market, that's $3 million a year. Yeah. 2% is $6 million a year. For us, we just see like, oh my God, there's like a bonanza out there. And we just keep trending in that direction. It's not a fad. It's people eat plant-based food all over the world because animal products are very expensive. They're expensive to produce. They're expensive to ship. So, I mean, it's just sort of, we're just moving in that direction. So I feel pretty confident in that, but we are in a tremendous market opportunity here in DC. So I think as long as we keep being visible, keep taking over that market share, keep taking on bigger and bigger events, keep up our branding, keep up the PR, keep being visible, all of those things. And then we take that market segment. So that's exactly what we're doing. And to look at the evolution of the brand and the evolution of the offering over the years, you have become more yourself, right? You guys have become, for lack of a better word, more foreign and more eclectic and more interesting in these really weird and wonderful ways. I mean, when you look at your beverage program, it's different than every other beverage program in DC and like a fabulous way. Yeah. I mean, we're bringing in those elements from our restaurant, the aquafaba, which is chickpea water for the egg whites in cocktails, obviously all the herbs and stuff. We opened the first vegan cheese shop in D.C. So over the summer, we curated cheeses from artisanal cheesemakers from all over the country and brought in our 25 favorite cheeses. So we've got breeze and we've got soft cheeses and cream cheeses and, and a whole bunch of blue cheeses. So we're just expanding the charcuterie program to include things like pumpkin sausage imported from Spain and fig salami and pressed flour cracker cookies and just more and more and more beautiful things. And we do the cheese boards as an appetizer so folks can interact with the cheeses on a daily basis through that program. Yeah, wine tastings. We're doing a, we're launching, going a whole like, um, vegan non-alcoholic wine program. So non-alcoholic Prosecco and non-alcoholic Rosé and non-alcoholic Sauvignon Blanc. And so we're bringing in a lot of those to go with our zero-proof cocktail program. So there's all these segments that we sort of look at as what they are. They're your children. They're little revenue streams, right? So you've got the zero proof, you've got the cheese program, the catering program, the deli, the bar. And it's like 
trading, right, and stocks and sort of diversifying your portfolio in terms of those revenue streams and, and then building and building. So even our merch, our clothes, our hats, our beanies, we have these new tote bags coming in for Valentine's Day. So just always with an eye towards you know building out all of those programs. So and that's where that creativity comes in, where that's like the fun stuff. Let's talk about creativity because I can't imagine that anyone doesn't get wrapped up in what you're saying because it's exciting, right? And everybody wants to do the same thing and everybody wants to experiment. And part of it is time and then Part of it is the belief, which is not completely untrue, that creativity and profitability do not live in harmony together, right? That there has to be some part of the planning, and you had mentioned you know, your wife's role within the company, that's part of an overall strategy. People have to know what you're there for. What job do you serve? What role do you play within your community? Because I think so many of us get so lost in our own creativity that we begin to do things that are off-brand or confuse the brand or overwhelm what the brand is. And I don't know about you, but I still get restaurant envy. I walk into other people's places and I'm like, I have to own this restaurant. How can yeah. I knock it off? So how do you weigh out the two, profitability versus creativity? It's like that adage of the airplane when you're doing the, the safety thing at the beginning of your flight and you have to put your oxygen mask on before you put your neighbor's oxygen mask on them, right? It's important that you get settled in order for you to help your neighbor. And I would say it's the same principle, right? So I would say these fun marketing things are years into the business. You do what you can at first, but you've got to get your mask on first, right? You have to get to profitability yourself in order to be able to serve, to be able to serve your employees, to be able to serve your customer base. You've got to get that mask on first. So I think I think that's the biggest thing. And, and that's just prioritization. And it's just kind of a fact, right? Because if you can't breathe, then you're not going to be able to help someone else breathe. When I started all of my locations, my business plan was very simple. I will open, people will come in, they will eat, hopefully quickly, then they will leave and they will tell other people about what a wonderful time they had. And those people will come to the restaurant on repeat. That is not a sustainable business model anymore. Not in the economic situation we find ourselves in, not with all of these new threats to our business that are edging in. Looking at all of the verticals you have, you seem like a business for all seasons, that no matter what's going on in the world, you can probably turn a profit. How did you decide what verticals to grow and in what order? Again, I think you're listening. I think it's through listening. So I think we're listening to sort of looking at lines, looking at what's profitable, right? And investing your time in those lines that are profitable and divesting in the lines that are not profitable. So there's some trial and error involved in it for sure. We did 
fresh grab and go go wholesale food distribution for a long time to grocery stores and gyms and um, coffee shops and as that business line developed and we learned more about it we learned that really to be able to make that profitable we just learn what you would really need to do and how much volume you would really need to do and what those implications were with that volume and then we were able to make a decision about that and say okay well do you want to move in that direction here are those implications and here's the potential revenue streams and so it's you're making those educated guesses but you're also sort of listening you're listening to the stresses that that line is maybe putting on the business and maybe the packaging is really expensive or the labeling. So you're just sort of listening to what's going on in the business and then trying to make an educated decision based on that, what you're hearing. So I think that's probably the best tool ultimately that you have in data, in numbers, and really being able to look at things critically to make those educated decisions. What does success look like in 2023? What are your goals? So we're coming off a two and a half year expansion, a very large expansion. We scaled during the pandemic and we were able to scale into this 5,000 square foot building where we've got our offices and we've got our deli, we've got our botanical bar. And we are kind of at the tail end of that expansion. So we just rolled out, um, we opened the bar in June 1st, 2023. And we just rolled out pasta and entrees and sort of dinner service down there. And so next we're going to move into brunch. Brunch is going to be the next frontier. Brunch is really big in D.C. So we'll move into that brunch program. And then really, I think, stabilize, 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 and lean into what we've got and what we've built. So that's the plan is sort of just being able to sort of lean in now and the plane's up, it's flying, and so now we're going to see what it can do. The restaurant industry is filled with unspoken rules and traditions about how things should be done. How would you like to see our industry turn the tables to create a better future for all of us? I think that there's a tremendous opportunity to switch our collective restaurant industry mindset forward, right? Because I think the way that things have been done in the past, I think it's a new day and I think there's new opportunities. I think that the pandemic brought on new opportunities, how to serve people, QR codes, technology. I think that if we move forward and we embrace, you know, these gains that we've seen, these technological gains, these social gains, these marketing gains, and even social gains, honestly, me too, right? Black Lives Matter, 
all of those things, right? If we take those gains, right, and we move forward with those gains, I think then the collective industry will be in great shape. And I think there's a great opportunity to do that. And I would love to see that happen because there's so many great things out there. And I just feel like it can be a new day, a new way to move on, a new way to embrace all of these changes that we've seen in our society, for sure. That's Michael Jantz Moon. For more information on DC Vegan, visit dc-vegan.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.